Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 312 with Vince Molinaro. I think you'll enjoy this chat with Vince because he's really laying out the specifics when it comes to leadership, what's expected, what's in the contract, if you will. So you'll learn one, the four key terms of the leadership contract, two, why having tough conversations is so important, and three, steps to becoming an accountable leader who gets the best out of people. So if you'd like to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F312. And while at awesomeatyourjob.com, I encourage you to check out some of our cool resources. One cool resource I'll point you to is the 10 Days to Winning at Work email course, which has 10 nifty bite-sized lessons that show you how to slash waste out of your work week. Over 80 minutes every week is what my clients have experienced. So you can go home earlier or do more cool, creative, fun, strategic work. That's over there at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Vince's story. Vince Molinaro experienced a defining moment early in his career when he saw a respected colleague and mentor succumb to a cancer she believed was the byproduct of a stressful, toxic work environment. As a result, Vince vowed to teach business leaders how to build successful organizations by increasing the accountability of their leaders. He's a leadership advisor, speaker, and an author of The Leadership Contract, a New York Times and USA Today bestseller now in its third edition, and The Leadership Contract Field Guide published in January 2018. Big thanks to Vince for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Vince. Vince, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks so much, Pete. It's a pleasure to be here and, and thanks for inviting me. Oh, yes. Well, I'm looking forward to getting into your wisdom here. But first, I have to hear the backstory of you playing the accordion as a child. Why this instrument? Uh, I didn't have much choice. Um, I, I wanted to play the guitar and the drums, but that got kind of ruled out. My parents were Italian immigrants, so... The accordion is what most kids like me learned uh, early uh, early on in their lives, and uh, that's what I started with. Uh, lasted about seven years of uh, lessons every Saturday morning, um, and that's you know part of who I am. It's part of my heritage as well. You know, the first thing that comes to mind when I imagine an accordion is Steve Urkel. I believe he was also an accordion maestro, was he not? I believe he was. I believe he was. And so it had at that time, certainly when I was growing up, uh, a little bit of that geeky um, brand. Uh, now, actually, uh, I find uh, certainly among some millennials, it's a pretty hip uh, instrument uh, to play. Excellent. Well, you sound super hip in terms of your content that you're sharing. So I'll give it to you. And tell me, did you have any tremendous accordion performances or highlights of your accordion career? You know what my my problem was that I very quickly learned to play by ear uh, by ear, uh, but you know I would listen to music and I could kind of figure out how to play it on the accordion. And so instead of practicing all the music that I was told to learn, I would spend all my time, you know, at the time, you know, figuring out how to play the Eagles and uh, Super Tramp on the accordion. <laughs> And so uh, that took over my interest. And so I was pretty a pretty mediocre accordion player. Uh, so there aren't many memorable uh, experiences as a performer. Well, I'm wondering, do you think you'd be capable of playing the accordion today or is it long gone? I could play at a very rudimentary level. I did when my kids were younger and we gave them piano lessons. I did take some piano lessons. And, you know, there is there is that musicality inside me that I still uh, maintain a little bit. and. Uh, 
So I think, if anything, the benefit is it, it really introduced uh, early on a love of music, uh, uh, a good ear for music, and the discipline uh, that it takes to practice something every day uh, consistently. Though uh, I didn't practice what I was supposed to practice, I did spend a little bit of time on that instrument every day. That's great. Well, I also want to hear about, you've got a great title, the Global Managing Director of Leadership Transformation for Lee Hecht Harrison. Can you tell us, you know, what is that role and this organization? Well, the organization is uh, part of the ADECO Group, which is a global Fortune 500 company. And uh, LHH is uh, one of the world's leading talent and uh, career development firms. Um, we've got, we operate in 65 countries. Uh, we're the world's largest provider of career transition and outplacement services. So when companies are needing to reduce staff, we're able to come in and provide really valuable services that help people through the transition, help them kind of find new work, uh, better jobs faster. And then we also have a talent and leadership side where we work with companies um, helping them develop uh, their leaders so they can be effective in dealing with all the change and transformation that's happening in many sectors around the world. I've got a sort of a small consulting unit, um, and we're responsible for driving the thought leadership for the company and helping uh, really senior leaders think about uh, how they need to kind of help their leaders get to the next level so their companies can be successful. Well, that's excellent. And you've put some of these concepts into your book, The Leadership Contract, which is now in the third edition. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, it's just come out in its third edition, as well as a shield guide companion book uh, that allows the reader to kind of apply all of the ideas in their own leadership role. Well, that's great. And so what's sort of the main idea or thesis behind the leadership contract? Well, it really started, you know, I've spent my career in the whole leadership uh, industry. I've done it through consulting with, you know, hundreds of organizations over the years. I've done a ton of research and writing uh, uh, as as well as, uh, you know, I've held uh, a lot of senior level roles myself and built uh, businesses and whatnot. And, in, you know, in the last little while, we kept hearing a real problem by a lot of our customers, which was we're investing more than ever in leadership development, uh, but we're not seeing it translate into stronger leadership. And we're trying to understand what's kind of behind that. And so I spent a lot of time reflecting on the industry, what I saw my clients doing, and I came down to this idea of, I think what's missing is uh, leaders not understanding that when they take on a leadership role, they've actually signed up for something quite important. But a lot of times that is not made clear or transparent. And it's largely because we have a history of kind of promoting strong technical performers into leadership roles. We throw them in those roles. Don't give them a lot of support. Don't give them a lot of guidance of understanding what it means to be a leader. They try their best, but they're never really performing as effectively as they can. And so that's where this idea of a contract came in that I believe it's kind of human nature for us to hold anybody we deem to be a leader to a higher standard of behavior. We expect more from people in leadership roles, and I think we should. And to me, that implies a contract. So when you take on a leadership role at any level in your career, you've actually signed up for something important. And I think that idea is not necessarily new. I think it's always been there. But today, the role is so demanding that we have to understand there's a leadership contract and then the terms that go along with that contract. And that's essentially the big idea of the book. Intriguing. So what are some of the key terms of the contract? 
as you're talking about contracts, I'm thinking I recently became a landlord. And so we've got leases and it's so funny with tenants, you know, you discover maybe every few months, there's another thing to put in the lease. (laughs) We didn't think of it last time. Not to put that in the sink. I guess we got to spell that out. So what are some of the key terms that show up in this contract? Well, there's really four when I try to really distill it down to how to help individuals and leadership roles really think about their roles. It's really about the mindset of a leader. And the first term is that it's a decision and you have to make it. And what that means is you've got to really think about yourself and define yourself as a leader. I have found in my work, you know, and my team uh, has as well, you know, in, in developing thousands and thousands of leaders worldwide that you find that you know, I can kind of take on a leadership role. Let's say I'm an engineer and I'm a great engineer and, and they kind of have a split mind. They, they still think of themselves as the engineers and the leadership part of their job, like their part-time job. And, and so they kind of all get to that leadership stuff, you know, Tuesday afternoon when I got a window between two and two thirty. And what I'm saying is, no, no, the decision is you got to define yourself as a leader. Yeah. You might be an engineer or an analyst or an accountant by training, there's nothing wrong with that. But once you're in a leadership role, that's got to be your main thing. And you got to define yourself in that way. And if you know yourself well enough, you kind of say, you know what, it's not for me, then that's a very noble decision. I think we need more people to be honest with themselves and acknowledging when leadership isn't their thing. So that's the first one. The second one is that, okay, once you decide, then you got to understand that it comes with responsibility and obligation. You have an obligation to shareholders, your customers, your employees, the communities in which you do business. And the fundamental obligation is to leave your company in, in better shape than you found it. And, you know, you look around the world today, you see leaders involved in scandal or corruption or other bad behavior, and you kind of go, well, they clearly missed this point somewhere along their career as a leader. And so obligation is the second one. The third one that often surprises leaders is, I'd say, leadership is is really a hard work. And you've got to get tough. You've got to have the resilience and resolve to tackle some of the challenging things you're, you're going to face. And a lot of it always has to do around people, managing poor performers, giving candid feedback, making tough calls that might make you, you know, unpopular with your team, but are critically important for your business. And, and sometimes people come in with a fallacy of, well, now I'm the manager. I can just kind of put my feet up on my desk and everyone else does the work. And it's like, no, no, no. You've got a lot of work to do as a leader. And some of it is pretty tough. And if you don't do it, you actually, and if you avoid it, you don't appreciate how much you weaken yourself and weaken your team. And then the last one is really the new model of leadership that's emerging in companies is that leadership is a community. You know, it's, it's about leaders working together in, in a very uh, you know, unified way, where in the past, it was a very centralized, you know, key decision makers at the top. They dispensed the order. The rest of us did our jobs. But today, you know, we're working in more networked uh, models. It's more cross-functional work. We've got global matrix structures. And so you've really got to be thinking about all the leaders and the relationships they have with one another and how effective they are at working together. So that, so there's a leadership contract and the four terms that I think are really helpful to think about our roles as leaders today. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, I'm right with you there. And I want to sort of talk through each of these a little bit. With the first point, in terms of deciding that you're a leader, I guess as a youth, I went to many leadership conferences and it was sort of beaten to my head that everyone's a leader. We're all leaders. And so could you contrast that a little bit in terms of the difference between, you know, we all exercise to a degree, you know, leadership and influence and self-management and all that stuff versus what you mean by the decision to be primarily a leader? I kind of 
probably would phrase that a little differently. I, I would say we all have the potential, leadership potential within us. And, and then I think you've got to make the decision to fully commit to say, I'm going to be truly accountable and work really hard to be as great of a leader as I possibly can. Uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't subscribe to this sense of, you know, there's a few of us that have been blessed with these special traits of a leadership and the rest of us don't have my, I, I, like you, I do believe everyone has the potential to be a leader, but I think that potential has to be honed. And, and, and in order to be honed, you've got to be pretty deliberate of the decision you're making and, and make that, that, you know, really firm commitment to yourself to be really deliberate uh, as a leader. So that, that's kind of my perspective on that one. Could you paint a picture for us with regard to, you know, the cost or the commitment or the time investment that is really necessary to lead effectively? I'm not sure if it's as much about um, a time, you know, a time commitment as much as really how you think about yourself. And if you think about yourself as a leader, then you realize that in many ways, there are different expectations of you, you know, that you're always on. You know, a good example you know, a good example is, um, you know, someone I write about the, the story in the book, he was, he was a team member. Um, this was in a technology company of this team. And then he got promoted to be the leader of the team. Now, all of a sudden, he found that his, the nature of his relationships changed, that he couldn't behave in the way he did when he was a team member, where they would go out, you know, for, for dinner and for drinks and, you know, party and have fun. He realized, no, no, now I'm the, le- the leader. I, I, I need to behave differently. I need to, doesn't mean that I, I bring a sense of authority to the relationship. But the expectations are different. And so there was an example of how he realized he needed to step up in different ways in order to lead that team. He still had strong relationships. He just wasn't one of the guys and the gals uh, as much. And so that's, that's sort of that. It's kind of more how you show up, what you pay attention to what you're being deliberate about, and obviously that commitment to develop yourself, to be open to p- feedback, and to invest in your own development. I think those, becomes fun- those become fundamental. Mm-hmm. Understood there. And so when it comes to the leadership is hard work phase, could you share a couple examples of the hard work that is often dodged and how to engage in it all the more effectively? The two we hear a lot about is you know, not being aggressive enough in managing a poor performer. Um, and not not having the confidence to give candid feedback to someone on your team. So if you take, let's just focus on one of them. We take the, the classic story of the chronic poor performer, and I've played this out wherever I've traveled uh, globally, and it, it tends to follow a same story or arc, right? You've got a poor performer on a team. Everybody knows who the poor performer is. And when employees of, and team members are off having lunch or a coffee, there's a lot of griping about the poor performer. Uh, you know, why can't, why can't she, or why can't he get his act together? We're all having to kind of put in extra effort in order to cover that person and on and on and on. As the weeks and months go by and you as the manager or the leader do nothing, the conversation shifts from the poor performer to who? To you. Now the griping is about why are you doing anything to help this person? You know, either give them training, either move them to another role, or maybe you need to be exited from the company. And so finally, you get the courage and you decide that maybe, yeah, this person needs to leave the organization. And you finally do it. And the first thought that comes to your mind, into your head every time you do it is, why did I wait so long? And that's been a universal finding every single time I talk to a leader about this. Doesn't matter whether they're a CEO or a supervisor or a team lead. Why, if we knew that, if we know why are we waiting so long, then why do we wait so long? Right? 
And we don't appreciate there's a price you pay as the weeks and months go by um, not addressing an issue like this. And you only got, you know, and, and, and that's only one of many issues you've got to deal with. And what I talk about in the book is the hard rule of leadership that as leaders, when we avoid some of these uh, legitimately challenging, uh, uh, you know, legitimately challenging hard work, we don't appreciate how we weaken ourselves, weaken our teams, and actually weaken our company. But if you have the courage to address them, you know, in a more timely manner, you actually, you know, strengthen yourself, strengthen your team, and strengthen your company. And this one gets a lot of attention from leaders. They all kind of admit, yeah, I, I've, I've got a couple, I've got a bunch of relationships I'm avoiding. I mean, a couple of conversations that I'm avoiding. I've got some strained relationships that I'm not doing anything about because I just can't get myself to approach that person. And we don't appreciate day to day how it weakens us and weakens our performance. Mm-hmm. So to the answer to that, then you mentioned courage in terms of executing that. Any pro tips for pulling that off? So in the field guide, I, I kind of talk about uh, really learning how to have tough conversations. And I, and I call them tough conversations because, uh, number one, they are legitimately tough. They're tough on the person. They're tough on you, right? We, we don't necessarily like having those conversations, but we need to. And a lot of times, uh, people kind of confuse being tough with being rough, which is not at all what I subscribe to. You can be, you, know, you can be tough. You can hold someone accountable. You can kind of, you know, put their feet to the fire without being abusive, demeaning, or a bully. And what I say is the place to begin is to think about how much you care about that person first. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about how much you care about that person, you realize then you have an obligation to give them the feedback. Maybe there is something in their blind spot and they're unaware of something they're doing that's undermining their performance. Uh, I see so many times a person's career gets curtailed because everybody knows a secret about them, but no one's ever had the courage to sit down and say, hey, you know how you do this? This is not working out. And what, what I find is that the more you do this, the more the, the better you get at it, the more uh, practice you have, the confidence increases. And then people just know that you're a person they can count on to give them the straight goods. And I find a lot of times in my work with CEOs, one of the things they value is you're going to give me the straight goods. I got no one around me that has the courage to tell me like it is. And I need to know how it is. And, and, and so that's, I think, the real opportunity. And what our global research has found is one of the lowest areas in companies is peer-to-peer feedback. You've got leaders who are hesitant. So if you and I are peers in different departments or divisions and we're not getting along, we kind of avoid each other, but, but we don't have the courage to kind of, you know, kind of sit down and, and, and hash these things out. I think that's going to be the future of leadership. Otherwise, we just waste a lot of time and things drag out longer than they need to. So I think it just begins with having that confidence and courage and knowing how to have a tough conversation, but it begins with actually caring about the person and their well-being and their outcome, their their final outcomes. I hear you. And then on the flip side of that, I think that there are a lot of leaders who claim they want to hear the real truth, but their actions, demeanor, words in response don't really mirror or reflect what they claim to want. So do you have any pro tips on how you can actually be encouraging and receptive to the real stuff, the truth that may be unpleasant to hear? Well, you know, I think you've got to be active in soliciting it, number one. Number two, uh, I think a lot of senior leaders uh, often fail to appreciate how much 
people just naturally will tell you what you think you want to hear as opposed to telling you what you need to hear. And so you've got to kind of call that out, right? And say, okay, are you, are you telling me what you think I need to hear? Or are you sugarcoating this? Or are you, uh, you know, only giving me the positive sides of the story, right? I mean, Jim Collins and Good to Great really talked about our ability to accept the brutal facts. And I think that's where it begins. If you can kind of set the tone that it's okay to uh, accept, you know, to, 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 to talk about the brutal facts, to not kill the messenger, uh, then you will see people come to you. Now, on the flip side, when you are that person, you know, speaking truth to power or, or having to, you know, raise a contentious issue with a senior leader, what I've learned helps, but what I've, what I've learned that helps is if, you know, if you don't come up as, you know, come across as if you're whining or complaining or blaming, because that's what tends to get the backs up, right? Uh, if you kind of come at it with a, place of maturity, you've done your homework, you've got the data, uh, you're being factual, they show kind of how you care about the company, then then that also helps the message be easier to take as well. So I think that's kind of a dual thing there. The leader has to set the right tone, um, has to challenge people to not make sure they're telling them what they want to hear, uh, not, you know, not punishing people for doing that. Where and, and then on the flip side, we need to learn how to kind of deliver some of those tough messages in a way that they're going to hear it uh, without reacting to someone who's, you know, whining and complaining. All right. Thank you. Well, so in addition to delivering the tough messages, you know, what are some of the best practices in terms of regular and daily communication to be inspiring and motivating and getting the best performance from people? Well, you know, it's interesting. We did a global study on on leadership accountability and, and we looked at one of the things we, we we found was that leadership accountability was a, a critical issue. And over the 2,000 respondents we had globally, uh, 72% of them, so three, three out of the four companies said it's a critical issue, but there's only seven, uh, 31% satisfaction with a degree of accountability being demonstrated by leaders globally. And we found that pattern. It doesn't matter whether we collected the data in North America, South America, Asia, Australia, New Zealand, Europe. It was the same pattern. It was quite stunning, actually. I was not expecting that. But one of the things we also found is that there was a difference, a connection between strong leadership accountability and company performance, where industry-leading companies just just surpassed the rest of the companies on a number of uh, a number of areas. And then one in, in particular that was interesting is we asked the respondents, think about the leaders in your company that are truly accountable. What is it that they do differently every day? Uh, the first one is that they hold everyone to high standards of performance. And so they set the bar really high. So I would say that's one of the things you need to do. Number two is they're genuinely excited about the company and its future. And so to your point around the inspiration, um, that, that's where inspiration comes from. If, if I show up as a leader and I'm dragging my heels every day, you can imagine uh, what impact that has on the engagement of me and of, of my team and my employees. But if I'm truly and genuinely excited and enthused, that, that's a huge uh, motivator. Uh, the third thing they do is they actually have the tough conversation. So people know exactly where you stand and there is that clarity. They may not like the conversation from time to time, but they always know you're going to have their back and not withhold anything that could be getting in the way. Uh, the, the fourth thing is they're very good at communicating the strategy so that everyone has real clarity about what it is they need to do and how it contributes. And the last thing is that they're always kind of 
you know, looking looking to the future, anticipating trends. But the four, first four, are really about how you communicate, how you inspire, set high standards. And you know Jeff Bezos at uh, you know at Amazon just with its most recent letters to his shareholders talk uh, at all uh, talk talk a lot about how they set really really high standards and how when you set high standards they are inspiring to people because people want to excel people want to do great but to do that you've got to set the bar high so that's the starting point you know then you kind of show your enthusiasm then you bring strategic clarity and then you have the courage to have the tough conversations when you need to. So we can kind of define behaviorally what really accountable leadership uh, looks like day to day and the impact it has on people. Well, I guess I'd like to hear maybe a specific example or case study where I could just get a crystal clear picture associated with, ah, that leader is being very accountable versus, ah, that leader is being very not accountable. Well, you know, if you think about what's been happening, um, you know, in, in, in the world, right? And you think about, you know, uh, it, it, uh, I traveled in the last last two years. I've traveled to 60 cities around the world, and it seems like wherever I was landing, there was a significant uh, leadership story unfolding, mostly on the political side. So, you know, in March of 2016, I land in in uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, and it happened to land on the day when millions of Brazilians are, are taking to the streets to protest their corruption, corruption in government and corruption among senior executives. And there I was that whole week there to talk about leadership, and that's all anyone wanted to talk about. But you get to see the, the, the negative impact that has on, on people, right, when, when the most senior leaders are not being held accountable. And you can kind of see it in, in corporate performance. You know, the good examples, you know, probably the, the example that is a, is, a, is a good one right now is what Starbucks has done this week with the training, right? They shut down the store to provide that important training they needed to, to kind of get at um, a core cultural issue. And that was, you know, a very strong message from the CEO to say, we, we, have, we have a problem. And we're going to fix that problem. And we're going to address it in a pretty dramatic way. What company does that? What company shuts down its doors uh, to address an issue that needed to be addressed? That's an example of that accountability. They didn't deflect it. They didn't deny it. Um, they didn't uh, diminish that. They addressed it head on. And that's the kind of example to me that we need more of. Um, and what you generally find is a lot of leaders, as they take on new roles and companies, they come in and they always see a gap in accountability. That's the, that's the, the, the biggest challenge that I find that they're struggling to, to put in place is how, to, how do you kind of create that sense of accountability? Then you see, you know, examples of companies that haven't shared well, uh, that where leaders get defensive. Um, you know, they make mistakes, but they won't admit them. Uh, and you can kind of go on and on and see those examples play out. But that, that's that's generally what it looks like, whether it's at, you know, the C-suite right down to a front line. It's, it's people not owning their role, not owning when they've made mistakes, not apologizing and doing nothing to rectify the situation. Mm-hmm. So when you say accountability, it's really about the ownership in terms of this is my responsibility and I will do what is necessary to ensure that it is made right. Yeah, and that sense of ownership is is really important, right? And and a lot of my clients say we we want to build like an own it culture. We want people to feel like you know they feel like the company is theirs because if you feel that, then you bring that 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 sense of ownership every day. You bring that sense of urgency. You you just are kind of operating at a at a higher level as a leader. Mm-hmm. 
Well, do you have any quick pointers in terms of just immediate do's and don'ts in order to be more of this transformational and inspiring and accountable leader? Like tomorrow, you know, do this and stop doing that. Well, I I think right off the bat is, you know, if we kind of think about applying the, um, you know, the four terms that we talked about earlier, uh, the first thing is you need to do, uh, you know, I've got, I've got a weekly blog that I call the gut check for leaders. And, and so it's always framed in the form of a question to inspire reflection. So I would, I would think about, you know, really sitting down and say, have I really made the decision to kind of think of myself and define myself as a leader? You know, am I all in and fully committed in my role as a leader? But because nothing, you, know, you can't do anything until that foundational question is answered. And sometimes we let ourselves slip into a state of mediocrity or we don't pay attention to it or we get so consumed by the day-to-day uh, workload and challenges that we don't pause and reflect. So I would take a few minutes to think about that. Then I would say, okay, if I'm all in, then what am I really here to do? What's the purpose of my role? What are what are my key obligations? Who 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 am I obligated to? What's the value that I'm trying to create for customers, for my employees, for shareholders? How am I leaving my company in better shape than I found it? So those are two pretty big questions that, that I think are foundational. The, the, the other opportunity uh, related to hard work is, is what one thing that you know you've been avoiding? And we all have our list of those things that we're avoiding. We all, they come to, they'll come top of mind pretty quickly. and make some advancement on improving that. Stop avoiding it. Stop delaying. Find a way to make progress. Because if you make progress, even in a small way, you are making things better. You are advancing things. You're not going to be stuck. You're not going to be spinning your wheels. Um, that, I think, is, is, is critical. So what is it that you're avoiding? Is it feedback you, know, you need to give someone? Is it a tough conversation you need to have with a pure colleague? And then the last one around community is, you know, research shows that in organizations today, the amount of collaboration that we're doing has increased like 67%. And and now we are more dependent on others for our own success. There was a time when, you know, uh, say 20 years ago, when organizations were more hierarchical, I could be fairly independent. As long as me and my team did our job in our own little silo, we were okay. Now you're so dependent on one another. So I would sit down and think, how strong are my relationships with the people that matter most to my success? Where are my relationships strong? Great. Maintain them. Where are the relationships strained and how can I repair them? So those are the four things. You got to decide are you all in, be clear on what you're obligated to, start being more deliberate in tackling the hard work and strengthen the relationships that you need to be successful. All right. Thank you. Well, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. I think we covered everything. You know, uh, probably the, the part that I would mention is I think it's really important in today's, you know, in this, in this period we're in now with the disruption that's happening in a lot of industries with the advent of, you know, artificial intelligence and, and um, the whole move of machine learning and robotics. You know, it's unclear what the future of work is really going to look like. But I think what I've come to really know and understand for sure is that our organizations desperately need uh, leaders and need leaders at all levels to really step up and be strong. And so if you are that one person that maybe you've never thought of yourself in that way, but you feel you've got that potential in you 
And if you, you know, really want to kind of start stepping up, you've got a huge opportunity to add tremendous value to your organizations and to your success. And leadership roles are difficult, but when you can build a great team, uh, when you can drive strong collective performance, I feel there's nothing better and more rewarding in one's career than, than that opportunity to be a leader. So, you know, it, it's a time when we need strong leadership and we need more people to step up and, and uh, be accountable and help uh, our companies be successful. All right. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? You know, a favorite quote uh, is my current favorite quote. Um, and it, uh, I got it a couple of weeks ago from Tim Ferriss in his, uh, I think it's his Friday Five Bullet uh, email blast that comes out. It was a quote that he's been mulling called the Hanlon's Razor. And it says um, something to the effect of never uh, kind of interpret malice when stupidity is a much better explanation. And why I like that is I find many times in organizations, particularly large, complex organizations, stuff doesn't always work out. In fact, it feels like more things don't work out than do work out. And I spend a lot of time talking to leaders who are really frustrated by things that don't work out. And they get really angry. It's like, why can't marketing get its act together? What the hell's going on with sales? And those folks in R&D don't have a clue what's going on. And we kind of attribute malice, like bad intentions, where sometimes I think people are just overworked. They're not always making the best decisions maybe because they don't have all the information. And so I find it's an interesting way of reframing those things that cause a lot of stress and frustration. So that quote is, is kind of resonating with me uh, uh, the last few weeks. You know, it does me as well. And I think about that in large part in relation to the media when it comes to stories just being like incomplete yeah. or seeming like the word choice is full of bias in terms of, well, we know how you yeah. feel about this issue. Is that I think that, you know, I think this journalist really just has too much on their plate <laughs> in terms of budgets and workload and what's going on. And I particularly think about when the story is about like a document, like a Supreme Court decision or a papal encyclical, it's sort of like, none of you have just like read the whole document, <laughs> which seems like the thing to do. And you're reporting a story on that and it's all completely contained in, you know, one, one volume. It's like you could read all of that and then you could report on it and then you have like the complete picture of what's inside it. But it seems like they never do. <laughs> and so I don't think there's malice as much as overwork in the mix. Yeah, and that, that kind of helps, right? Uh, it, it sort of helps because you could be sitting going, what were they thinking? And I, I think that that is an important part of people's realities today, right? Try, and I think what it also means for leaders, and I've been thinking about this as well, is this ability to sort through what's real and what's hype, uh, you know, because there's just so much coming at us. And, and, you know, I always just, I just want to be clear on what's going on sometimes. And, and it's hard, it's hard to do. It's hard work because there's a lot of information, some of it conflicting, uh, some of it biased. And then if you kind of assume there's malintent, then that just adds an emotional component sometimes isn't helpful. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or a bit of research? Uh, that's a great one. I'm trying to say, I, I kind of stay on top of a lot of the, the science um, that, that's going on. And I don't fit anything specific um, that I would cite. But I, I think what's interesting is I am starting to see a pattern in, in some of the research in a number of areas where what we've 
what we've uh, long believed or long held to be true is being upended a little bit. And, and, and so it's early days in my conclusion, so I don't want to be too definitive just yet, but I think it's a kind of interesting time where uh, a lot of these things that we uh, always took for granted are being, are being changed. And that, I think, creates new opportunities to think, um, you know, to think broadly about um, our future and, uh, and what's possible. So that, that's kind of how I, how I would answer that right now. All right. And how about a favorite book? I've always had an interest in kind of a Greek and Roman thinking and drama. So I'm, I'm all into the books on uh, kind of the stoic way and how it, um, how it plays out, um, um, you know, uh, it, how it plays out in leadership. So there's a lot of those books out now that are really um, meaningful to me. And, um, and that's, uh, you know, that's great. Um, in, in many ways. So there's a number of those. Ryan Holiday's done some great work there. And it just brings a kind of a, an interesting perspective to life, which is in many ways really practical and in, in some ways also um, uh, pessimistic, <laughs> uh, which, I, which I find interesting. And it's just a way of helping you reframe and be effective uh, in a world where there's so much complexity and change. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And how about a favorite tool? Well, I do the cooking in the house. So if uh, I would say that uh, the knives I use to prep and make meals, those are my favorite tools, particularly when they're nice and sharp and you can do some great, uh, uh, some great uh, prepping. I would say those are, those are my favorite tools because uh, they help me uh, cook the meals uh, for, for, for my family. All right. And a favorite habit? It would have to be the discipline of, of exercise and making sure I do that every day and uh, keeping myself as fit as I can. Uh, I think that right now, in terms of where I'm at, it's really important to me. Okay. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect, resonate, get Kindle book highlighted, retweeted, heads nodding when you share it from the stage? The one I think I stumbled on is um, is something about um, when it comes to leadership, um, good intentions are not enough. And I find that one always captures people's uh, uh, imagination. And I think it's because I think that we have a lot of people in leadership roles who are well-intended, but don't appreciate what it really takes to excel and be successful. And so good intentions are not enough when it comes to leadership. You really need to roll up your sleeves and commit to the role. Okay. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Uh, certainly uh, LinkedIn is the platform I primarily use. Uh, share my blogs and whatnot so they can find me there or at www.theleadershipcontract.com and they can find out about uh, the books, the blogs, and uh, other work that I do. All right. And do you have a parting call to action or challenge to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Well, I think, you know, uh, being awesome uh, at one's job uh, really takes uh, that sense of commitment. And I think it's echoing what I said before. Companies need people to step up and be leaders at all levels. And, and uh, like we discussed earlier, uh, we all have that potential inside of us. It's not a magical uh, quality that only a few people have been blessed with. And so uh, I think if um, people really want to be awesome at work, the way to do it is to step up and lead. Okay. Well, Vince, thanks so much for taking this time and sharing the wisdom. 
wish you tons of luck and success with the leadership contract next edition and the field guide and, and all you're up to. Thank you so much. I really do uh, appreciate it. And this was fun. Uh, some great questions. Thank you. You know, it sounds so simple, but I really resonated with what Ben said with regard to once you're in a leadership role, that's got to be your main thing. And it's intriguing, kind of calling back to the Bruce Tolgan episode with the crisis of under management. It really does seem to ring true that you've got some leadership responsibilities, but there's still plenty of other responsibilities and a lot of that people management and development and one-on-one conversation stuff gets pushed to the wayside. And it's hard to get that time that really makes all the difference. So really good gut check, prioritization, recalibration. That rhymes. Maybe we'll trademark it in terms of, you know, what is the leader's main role and where should the time be spent optimally? So again, if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep312. If you have not already, I hope you'll push the subscribe button. You'll hear from Tom Singer making a reprise appearance here. And he is talking about the paradox of potential. Why do some people reach their potential? Some people don't. What makes the difference? What could be done to reach yours? Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 